good evening, uh, ladies and gentlemen. It's, uh, it's been one of the great pleasures uh, of the last 10 years to welcome John Lithgow here to the National. In fact, for the second time, he, uh, he uh, performed his beautiful uh, one-man show here uh, a couple of years ago, uh, which had a tremendous impact. So it was marvelous that he was able uh, to come and, uh, and do the magistrate, which if you're seeing tonight, let me assure you you're in for an absolute treat. Um, so I'm going to, uh, I'm just going to, knowing that uh, it's a rare event to have a great stage actor here uh, on the stage of the Olivier uh, in front of an audience uh, that doesn't know that much about his life story. Most of the uh, uh, English stage actors you know uh, a little about already. Uh, I'm going to ask John questions which I've culled from his absolutely brilliantly written um, autobiography called Drama and Actors Education, which I couldn't recommend uh, more highly. It's, a, it's a, a really beautiful book. And, fascinating uh, to read about the emergence um, of an American stage career, uh, knowing as we do so much about the way uh, English stage careers emerge. So, John, you were born in a suitcase. I was. <laughs> yes, uh, a sort of Shakespearean suitcase, yeah. in fact. Quite an anomaly for an American actor. Uh, my dad was, uh, he was mad, mad about Shakespeare and uh, created four or five Shakespeare, summer outdoor Shakespeare festivals in Ohio when I was growing up. There was a kind of Shakespeare walla in the Midwest. Uh, one of these, the Great Lakes Theater Company in Cleveland is still going on mm -hmm. 50 years after he started it. And I was just a, a kid sitting around watching rehearsals, befriending the actors, bit by bit playing mustard seed and the child, the prince in the, in the tower. Yeah. Graduated to Nim, Pinch, Froth, all the little character parts, and then finally played great roles like Hortensio and Guildenstern. Yeah. All before I was about 18. And your dad was a director primarily and, and also an actor. Yeah. He was producer, director, actor. He was also an academic, which was kind of his. Uh, uh, it was kind of the burden he carried, uh, falling between two stools. When he wasn't pr professionally producing theater in the summertime, he was scrambling around in the wintertime in various teaching jobs. We, yeah. we just moved all over the place. Yeah, you, would, you, would, you were pretty peripatetic. You were yeah. constantly um, upping sticks and going somewhere else. That's yeah. right. Uh, and what was it like being directed by him? Well, it was, uh, it was very much a, a family affair. He, I mean, his, to give you some idea what his festivals were like, they were amazing, amazing things. But he would do seven Shakespeare plays in repertory, opening one a week for, in the course of nine weeks, with the actors rehearsing in the day and performing at night. So being directed by, by my father, it was kind of like being on a sports team and being told louder, faster, louder, faster. I mean, that's, that, was, that was his fallback direction. He was actually a wonderful director because he, he just loved Shakespeare. He felt all you needed to do was face the audience and speak the words. Outdoors, you know, for big crowds uh, it, without amplification in those days. Uh, so it was, it was a very muscular and, and uh, vocal Shakespeare version of Shakespeare, but there wasn't a lot of nuance. You know, now I've, when I'm in a Shakespeare play, when you direct a Shakespeare play, minimum six weeks. 
an enormous amount of, uh, first of all, uh, con conception of the entire production, deep research, uh, uh, and an extremely meticulous text study, absolutely understanding every phrase, uh, a lot of attention to verse, all these things out the window. I mean, this was just yeah. We literally had six, seven days to put on Much Ado About Nothing. And, and big houses. Did, did, did yeah, they, oh, yeah. it was incredibly popular. Yeah. It was uh, completely amazing. Uh, he produced every single Shakespeare play, many of them more than once. And uh, it was, his big, there was one that lasted between 1951 and 1958. That was his great golden age kind of summer Shakespeare festival at Antioch College in Ohio. And the people would park their cars around the huge square campus. And we, as kids, you know, eight, nine years old, one of our games was to go around and look at the license plates and see how many states in the Union had come, had made this extraordinary pilgrimage to spend a week and see seven Shakespeare plays. It was really remarkable. Yeah. And I, the, the growing up and becoming a sort of arrogant young actor, I thought, well, they couldn't have been very good. <laughs> but then there, this, I describe it in the book. Uh, uh, a prop man out in Hollywood who happened to be the son of one of the actors from that company who had pa passed away, a few years ago, he sent me an audio cassette derived from reel-to-reel -reel tape made of, of a production of Merry Wives of Windsor. And my father was Dr. Caius. And it was the Joachim Wert scene with, Dr., uh, 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 with uh, Jack Rugby. Jean, mon Dieu, Jacques Rugby, Joachim Wert, you know. And I listened to this. There was, in my car, I, I thought, well, I, well, I'll have a listen. I was driving to, to work, and I heard my dad in this outrageous, over-the-top, cornball French accent playing uh, Dr. Caius in Merry Wives, Merry Wives of Windsor in Yellow Springs, Ohio, getting enormous laughs, getting a huge exit round when he exited. And he sounded fantastic. I mean, it was like they were just as good as I remembered, and probably better. Yeah. It was really amazing. Yeah. So you never really had a chance of not being an actor? Well, I didn't want to be an actor. I, I wanted to somehow uh, avoid being an actor, but I, I was very, very serious about painting, curiously. Yeah. I mean, from as, uh, as an eight, nine, ten-year-old, if people asked me, what are you going to be? I would say, I'm going to be an artist. And I was very serious about it and studied at the Art Students League ended up in Princeton, New Jersey in, in uh, access to New York at the end of high school. And I used to take bus rides on Saturday mornings to take figure drawing classes with actual nudes at age 16. I, was, I felt like a very serious artist, and I was. Yeah. Not a very good one, but a very serious <laughs> one. And, but then I went off to Harvard and instantly, as one does in college, especially at Harvard, you fall in with for dear life, you cling to a group where, you're, where you have a little bit of expertise. And I was immediately the star on campus. I mean, I was a very accomplished actor by pure osmosis. And 
if you're successful at something at Harvard, that's likely to be what you'll do with your life, whether you want to or not. So uh, that that was the big that was you know that, by that time I was 19 years old. I can say that uh, you are still an enormously accomplished artist. John well. gives the finest first night cards of any actor I've ever come across. Amazing caricatures uh, of the entire company, rivaled only by Tony Sher, who's also... Uh, oh, does he really? A, Tony's a, a, Tony is a wonderful artist oh. and also gives very good first night cards. <laughs> yeah, and, uh, I, I, I shouldn't really have mentioned that, but it's... Uh, <laughs> but, <laughs> Nick, Nick now has two of them. Yeah, so, but, but um, a, a, a talent... Uh, at that level, rare um, amongst actors. Uh, just well, uh, I always had a, f a facility, which is probably why I, why I wanted to be an artist. Uh, and that hasn't left me, but if, if I had stayed with it, I would really be a, 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 I'd be a good artist. Mm -hmm. I don't consider myself one now. Cause... Terrible stagehand you were. You tell a story about, <laughs> about being Marcel Marceau's stagehand. <laughs> yes. Yeah. yes. Shall I tell the story? Yeah, please. <laughs> yeah. This was when my dad ran he was the director of the McCarter Theater at Princeton University, which he had a theater company there, but they also booked in remarkable one-night stand acts and music. And, and one of the most popular was Marcel Marceau, who would come once a year, and they'd turn out in droves. And, and I would work occasionally as a stagehand, running lights or painting sets. And for Marcel Marceau, they asked me to, to raise and lower the curtain. And in the, <laughs> in the uh, tech rehearsal, which, of course, Marceau and his producer and stage manager had done a thousand times in broken English, they took me through exactly how they wanted the, And everything about Marcel Marceau's performance, as you can imagine, was unbelievably anal and meticulous, <laughs> as you know. And so for the curtain call, he wanted like five curtain calls, and he wanted the he wanted the curtain to gracefully bounce, you know. And this was a gigantic, velour, old-time theater curtain. And I had to learn this new skill. There were these two huge hemp ropes. And to bring the curtain down, you had to pull down on one rope. And it came down. And then you would grab the other, and it would haul you up off your feet. And your weight would counterweight, and you could pull it, and the curtain would go back up. And when it was up, you'd switch ropes and pull it back down. And that is extremely difficult, but by God, I mastered it and was going up and down in rehearsal with Marceau's, you know, to bow. And the show was fantastic as it always is. And I brought the, the, the curtain down perfectly, back up perfectly, down, up, down. Up, but it was extremely difficult. And by the third time, I was just exhausted. Pulling, and I pulled it down, and it pulled me up, and I fell off the rope. And, and I looked at the two ropes, and the curtain was down. I had to pull it back up. I, I forgot which rope. I just started pulling on it. I pulled and pulled and pulled. It started getting easier and easier. And I looked out onto the stage. There was about an eight-foot pile of curtain. <laughs> in front of Marcel Marceau, who was looking at me like this. You know, that's terrifying. 
I, I describe it as a mask of rage <laughs> in the book. <laughs> um, and that was it, for, as far as being a stage yes, technician right. was concerned. Yes, yeah. right. But Harvard, you, uh, where you went on a scholarship, you describe in the book as the most active and creative years of my life. Mm -hmm. um, and the list that you make in your book <laughs> of the things you did in Harvard, I thought, you know, those of us who... Uh, Frittered away our time at Cambridge or Oxford, um, uh, had pretty impressive university resumes. Yours is amazing. <laughs> it's, it's just, it's ridiculous. Yeah. You know, a 19-year-old directing Buchner's Wojciech. <laughs> what? <laughs> like, what did I know about, you know, murderous sexual jealousy and things like that? But yeah, I, the, the thing about Harvard is it's got this real sniffy attitude toward actual pedagogy in the creative arts. You know, it's a gentleman's institution uh, with a very 19th century, it's a little different now, but back in those days, a gentleman didn't study the arts. They occasionally practiced it uh, in an extracurricular way. And so I, there was a tremendous amount of activity, but it was unsupervised, more or less, or if there were faculty advisors, you didn't want to hear a word from them. Uh, we were all so arrogant, and we wanted to do it all our own ways. And it, as a result, total freedom, because they were also giving you, you know, little budgets to put things on, and a beautiful drama center with incredible uh, facilities. And yeah, I directed uh, Mozart's Major Figaro. I directed Stravinsky's uh, Soldier's Tale. and. Uh, uh, I acted Tartuffe. I did two or three Gilbert and Sullivan operettas uh, and played Gloucester in King Lear at age 18. By chance, I happened to have John Gilgood's wig. He'd, he'd been in something in Boston and had let them have all of his wigs in there. I was at 18. John Gilgood's wig for uh, Virgies in Much Ado About Nothing. Wow. <laughs> And what about your decision eventually to become an actor? How did that happen? Well, as I describe in the book, uh, a slightly heightened version of that moment of decision. I, I played King Paramount in Utopia Limited, a fairly obscure Gilbert and Sullivan opera. Raise your hands if you've ever heard of Utopia Limited. Not bad. Well, this is England, after I've, all. I've been in it. Have you? What did you play? I played Fantis, uh, tiny part, Supreme Court Scafio and Fantis. Yeah. Yes, you're right. Yeah, so there you go. Well, yeah, I was King Paramount. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> Take that, Fantis. Yeah, well, you're the actor. <laughs> <laughs> well, if you'll remember, all of you who know it, Act 2 begins with that great GNS septet with King Paramount singing the patter verse, just as I do in The Magistrate. With a huge, you know, with uh, three guys on either side of me doing a kind of uh, minstrel show in the old English music hall vein with tambourines and uh, drumsticks and things. Uh, it, it, the song was all about how uh, Britain, colonial Britain, has anglified this Polynesian kingdom. Um, uh, it really is surprising what a thorough anglicizing we have brought about. Utopia is quite another land in her enterprise. We have England with improvements which dutifully offer to your motherland. It's the famous show-stopping number in Utopia Limited, to such an extent that the director, who had done the show a few times, 
he planned two encores. He said, you're going to need encores for this because everybody loves this. And sure enough, we, we stayed, planned and staged two encores. And it, that number ended, and everybody left the stage, and I was left on stage to begin the next. Well, we exhausted the two encores, and the audience kept on applauding, and, it, and there was nothing to do. Like, we, couldn't, we hadn't planned to do it any more than that. And the audience kept applauding, applauding, and, and they started cheering, and it must have gone on for about 20 seconds. <coughs> but it felt like about 10 minutes. And I always said it was during those 10 minutes I decided to come an actor. <laughs> like if you hear enough laughter and applause, you won't do anything else with your life. No. So you came to London? Uh, I came to London after a, Harvard, on yeah. On a Fulbright scholarship and went to Lambda. Yeah. Uh, during great days for the London theater. Yeah, yeah. a fantastic time. Yeah, what do you remember in particular? Well, uh, the Fulbright, Fulbrights were given to two, a, a man, a boy and a girl in those days to join the D group. Uh, those of you who know about Lambda know about the D group. It's a wonderful one-year program for overseas students, which is still uh, part of Lambda. I don't think there are two places assigned to Fulbright scholars anymore. So I came, back, I came to England. I had never been to England before. Uh, my father had never been to England, even though he devoted his whole life to Shakespeare. I had studied English history and literature at Harvard, again, without ever being here. Uh, and I just had an amazing time. It was like swallowing an a English Academy training horse pill. Uh, what do I remember in particular? Just everything. I mean, it was amazingly rigorous, like nine to five every day with the afternoon given over to rehearsals and these incredible voice lessons, diction lessons, uh, choral lessons, historical dance, movement, uh, fencing and tumbling, uh, exactly what they're, they're, they're going through the same motions. They just went through it today, you know. Uh, Lambda, Rada, Central, it is the, and back in those days, there was no, there was no equivalent training like it in the US. Uh, nowadays, actually there are some very fine drama schools mm. in the US, but they are on, based on the, the uh, British model, I think. Yeah. So I just, I just thought it was wonderful, and I, uh, the only, I, I just went there this week, actually, Thursday morning, to, to speak to the students, as I do, you know, periodically when I'm in London. Uh, it was an interesting moment. One of the kids, it was a Q&A also, one of the kids asked, at the end of my year at Lambda, did I have any regrets or disappointments? And I said, I'll tell you my disappointment, but let me demonstrate it. This was 250 kids all squeezed into a common room. I said, all of you in the D group, all of you Americans, raise your hands. And this little group of about 15 kids all raised their hands, and they were all together. And I said, OK, now, all of you who are from Britain, raise your hands. All the hands went up. And I said, well, there you have it. Get to know each other, you know. I said, that's your, if you learn, if you take nothing else away from our 90 minutes, you know, you Americans, you're in England. You know, make friends, get to know each other. Because it's true, David Suchet was a student at Lambda the whole time I was there, and I never met him. 
I worked with him about 10 years later and we became friends ever since. I never met him at the whole time it was Lamb. I, I remember seeing him. You can't miss David Suchet. But I, I, never, I never met him. So. And then when, you, when your um, stage career started, I think you, you went initially back and, and worked for your dad, I yeah. think. But then a spectacular Broadway career. Do you think your London training, your London training, uh, was central to the career you then had on Broadway? It was, but for a curious reason. Uh, my first Broadway show was a play that I had, I, I had a lot of trouble getting any acting work initially. I, I worked for my dad and then felt, I've got to do this on my own. Went to New York and was, couldn't get an acting job for two years. When I finally did get one, it was a terrific rep company called the Long Wharf Theater outside of New York. And the second play we did was an American premiere of David Story's Changing Room, which got tremendous national press and was brought intact to Broadway. And that was my Broadway debut in an English play. It opened on March 7th, 1973, and on March 25th, I won a Tony Award for it. Mm. Surely the quickest route to a Tony from a Broadway debut, debut in history. And after that, that was literally the last time I struggled to get acting work, and that was 1973. The next six things I did in New York were plays from England. Uh, I mean, I was just an equipped American actor to do British plays, including I was a Manchester milkman in comedians. I was a, a Leeds rugby football player. I was an Irish coal stoker in Anna Christie, uh, on and on all these. I was an Anglican priest, and I, everybody thought I was an Englishman. It got me off to a wonderful start, but at a certain point I felt, enough of this, I've got to show people that I'm an American. <laughs> I mean, for one thing, I had brought home an English accent without even knowing it or wanting it. And I had to obliterate that, and that was not an easy thing to do. But do you think you were acting differently from from any of your uh, from any from any of the Americans you were you were acting with? Did you notice that they were, uh, you know, just to use a shorthand, more methody, and you were more technical? I I get I think so. I mean, in, in a very general way, mm -hmm. and I think that's still somewhat true. Um, but I was this odd case anyway. I mean, I'd grown up being in 20 Shakespeare plays before I was 20 years old. So mm. uh, I was already a kind of hybrid English actor. Mm. Uh, my, my challenge always has been to sort of uh, prove that I'm an American, at least in those early days. Mm. And you worked with um, some, no, I was going to say some, um, Broadway legends, virtually all of the Broadway legends. I mean, you, me you mentioned as four that you were particularly bowled over by Mike Nichols, Jose Quintero, Bob Fosse, and Meryl Streep. That's right. Yeah. yeah. So it's, that's, a, that's a pretty impressive list of colleagues. Well, you know, uh, theatre is, is a wonderful community wherever you are. I mean, I'm a stranger to the uh, community of London theatre, but the New York theater community is very small. Mm. And if you are a regularly working actor, yeah, you, you eventually work with just about everybody there that you want to work with. Mm. 
Um, the interesting thing is how generational it is. There was a 14-year period when I did not work in New York because my kids were growing up in Los Angeles. My wife is a uh, university professor in, in Los Angeles. And six of those 14 years was third rock from the sun, a long, long commitment. When I finally went back to New York theater, it was in 1988 in M. Butterfly, and it was like I didn't know anybody. Everybody had moved on. Yeah. It was kind of, it was kind of creepy. Yeah. Uh, I it, think it's it, one of the single biggest differences between the New York profession, the American profession, and the British profession is that everybody's in London here. Nobody, yes. nobody, nobody you, call, you call your dual careers dual citizenship, Los yeah. Angeles and, 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 and New York. But I, nobody ever has to take out dual citizenship here. That's you, true. You just, uh, you're just a citizen of the, of the one community, I yeah. think, throughout your career. And it's extraordinary. We, yeah, there are two or three people in the magistrate who are doing television jobs while we're uh, doing the show. Nancy Carroll is doing a, a radio play on Wednesday. Yeah. You know, it's, it's great uh, and, and enviable because LA is a completely different world. Yeah. I'm, one, I'm one of the few actors that bounces back comfortably between the two. Yeah. And they even have homes in both places. Yeah. Uh, but that's very hard to sustain. And it's, I mean, it's, it's not an easy thing. I always seem to be in the wrong city, the opposite city from my wife. Yeah. <laughs> Thank you, John. It's a oh, huge it's pleasure to have you here. Thank you. Oh, love you. <laughs>